Genesis chapter 23 is the sermon text for today. And then the New Testament reading is 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 13. Genesis chapter 23, let us give ourselves now to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered, Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting amongst the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, and the sight of the sons of my people I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Mechpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, and the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let us turn our attention now to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-13. through 13. Here Peter is writing to the church, to Christians, both of Jewish and Gentile ethnicity. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So far the reading of God's holy word. Our prayer now is that the Lord would bless the preaching of the Word, and that He would help us to live according to it. Brothers and sisters, the last time that we heard about Sarah, the wife of Abraham and the mother of the nation of Israel, was in Genesis chapter 21. There we learned of the birth of Isaac, and also of the casting out of Ishmael. Now that was only two chapters ago in the book of Genesis, But I want you to think of this, Uh, 37 years passed between the events of chapter 21 and the events recorded for us here in chapter 23. Uh, Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born, and here we are told that she died at the age of 127. And so I think it is good to be reminded from time to time that the scriptures are not a detailed record of the history of God's people. Sarah lived 127 years, and we know nothing at all about her life from the age of 90 to the time of her death. That's a long time, 37 years. We know nothing about the life of Sarah. The scriptures, therefore, are very selective. I hope that you see this. And the point that I am here making in this introduction is that God reveals what He reveals to us in His Holy Word For a purpose. Moses wrote what he wrote, not so that we might have a detailed record of the history of Abraham and Sarah, but to make a point so that the people of God might be edified in every generation. What then is the point of Genesis chapter 23? What does this passage teach us? Why is this chapter included in the record of God's redemptive activities? As we consider this text carefully, we'll find that it highlights three things. One, Abraham's sorrow. Two, Abraham's sojourning. And three, Abraham's acquisition of a sliver of land in Canaan to be used as a burial place for his wife and for his people. And I think you would do well to notice that it is actually the third of these things that receives the most attention in this text. 
and might be the thing that we give least attention to, but it is the third of these things that receives the most attention. Yes, Abraham mourned Sarah's death, and yes, he continued on as a sojourner in the land of Canaan, but notice that the bulk of Genesis chapter 23 focuses upon this negotiation that took place between Abraham and Ephron the Hittite, and Abraham's eventual acquisition of a sliver of land in Canaan to be used as a burial place for his people. The question we should keep in mind is this, why this emphasis upon Abraham's possession of a piece of land? Why such an emphasis upon this little event that might seem so insignificant to you and to me from our perspective But we must begin by, first of all, considering Abraham's sorrow in verses 1 and 2, because it does set the stage for what follows. There we read, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I'd like to make three observations about this sad scene. One, notice that Abraham and Sarah... As important as they were to the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes, they were not exempt from the curse of death that has come upon all mankind as a result of Adam's fall. From our point of view, Sarah lived a very long life, didn't she? 127 years is a very long time uh, for a person to live. But we should remember that the world that was before the flood, in that world, men and women lived much longer than that, didn't they? Over the course of time... The limit for man's lifespan came to be about 120 years. But prior to the flood, men and women lived for much longer. I think those figures like Adam and Enoch, if they heard about Sarah dying at the age of 127, would have said she went home to be with the Lord and it was too soon. Her life was too brief. But remember also that when God first made us, when He made Adam and Eve in the beginning, He created us, He created them to live not for 900 years nor for 127, but to live forever and ever. And throughout the book of Genesis, we are reminded again and again that the wages of sin is death. So and so lived for such and such a period of time and they died. We are reminded of this over and over again. And here we see that as significant as Sarah was to the accomplishment of God's plan of redemption, she still died. She still died. Brothers and sisters, you and I ought to live our lives being mindful of our own mortality. We ought to think about it from time to time. I think it is very foolish to go on living in this life, uh, neglecting the knowledge of our own mortality. And in fact, there is a ditch on both sides of the road when it comes to this. Some, as I have just said, give little thought to their mortality. They live as if they will never die. And they overlook the fact that when they do die, they will stand before their Maker. Uh, This might be particularly true for those who are young. I think time moves much more slowly uh, for those who are young. They've experienced less time, and therefore time moves more slowly. And to them, to the young, 60, 70, or 80 years seems like such a long way off. But they often forget that the Lord might choose to take them at a younger age. And so they give little thought to their mortality. But even those who are advanced in years make the same mistake of thinking little of their mortality. This is the ditch on one side of the road. But 
Some slip into the ditch on the other side of the road. These are those who dwell upon the thought of death to the point of being overcome by fear. These are so mindful of the frailty of life that they find it difficult to live at all. They're sort of petrified and overcome by the fear of death or the fear of trial and tribulation. What I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, is that God calls us to avoid both heirs. We are to live being mindful of our mortality so that we might live humbly and purposefully in this world. But we are also to live courageously and by faith. We're to trust forever in our God, knowing that He is able to bring us safely into our heavenly home. Abraham and Sarah, as important as they were to the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes, they were not exempt from the curse of death that has come upon all mankind as a result of Adam's fall. Two, recognize that neither were they exempt from sorrow. Neither were they exempt from sorrow. And and I will admit, this point hardly needs to be made uh, at this point in the narrative. If you have been following along in our study of Genesis at all, you know full well that Abraham and Sarah experienced sorrow. Their life was a difficult life. They experienced many trials and tribulations. And so I must remind you again, saying, do not be surprised by sorrow when it strikes. Do not be surprised by sorrow when it strikes. Give thanks to God for the good times. It is important that we do this. And when difficulties do arise, you are to cling to Christ and you are to count it all joy knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You're to let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is what James 1, 2 through 4 commands. And so we are to have this approach in life. We are to give thanks to God. We are to rejoice for all of the good that He sends in our way. And then when calamity strikes, when difficulty strikes, sorrow and suffering, we are to look upon that and we are to say, I'm going to count it joy. For I know that my God is working even through this to refine me, uh, to produce in me steadfastness. He is completing me. He is making it such that I lack nothing through this time of difficulty. It is a refiner's fire that I am here passing through in this time of sorrow. Three, notice that Abraham did truly mourn Sarah's death. Abraham truly mourned Sarah's death. He went in to mourn for her and to weep for her. I think this is a truly touching scene. Don't you agree? Here we see Abraham's love for Sarah put on display. Some assume, and I have heard this interpretation before and I think it is wrong, that because the text says Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah, this means that he was not by her side during her ailment or as she passed, indicating that there was some separation between the two. But this is not necessarily the case. The the language used here refers to mourning that is conducted in a formal fashion according to the customs of the day. Sarah passed, and I assume that Abraham was with her to the end. But having died, Abraham went in to mourn for her. It's likely that he tore his garments. Perhaps he threw dust on his head, and he wept bitterly at the death of his wife. There are relationships uh, that we experience that are especially close in this world. The relationship between friends. uh, The relationship that exists between brothers and sisters, according to the flesh. The relationship that exists between parents and children. But the relationship between husband and wife is most intimate 
For in marriage the two become one flesh. It is no secret that Abraham and Sarah had their difficulties in the marriage relationship. We know all about this. I can think of three, maybe even four events recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture that must have put a significant strain upon their marriage. I will not recount them for you. You can review on your own. And who knows how many events there were that are not mentioned that put a strain on their marriage relationship. And yet here we see Abraham and Sarah together in the end. Abraham truly mourned over her passing. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are married, I would say this to you. Cherish your spouse. Protect that relationship. Make it first above all other earthly relationships. Invest into it. And when wrongs are committed, repent truly. And be sure to forgive. So that our final moments would be with our spouses and that the final scene would be as touching as the one that we see here where Abraham goes in to weep over his wife who has died. Abraham mourned Sarah's death, we are told. And I want you also to see, therefore, that you are permitted to mourn death even if your hope is set in Christ Jesus. You as a Christian are permitted to mourn death even if your hope is set in Christ Jesus. I I have noticed that amongst the Christian community today, it's almost as if mourning is sometimes frowned upon, as if it is an indication of a lack of faith or the result of forgetting the hope that we have in Christ. Have you noticed that as well? I'm not trying to be critical here, um, so please do not take personal offense to this, but just notice how we no longer call them funerals, but celebrations of life. Have you noticed that? And frankly, I don't care what you call it. I don't think it matters. But I think it does matter that we permit one another to mourn and to mourn sincerely. We see that Abraham sincerely mourned Sarah's death. He wept over the fact that she had passed. Remember that Christ sincerely mourned the death of his good friend Lazarus. What did he do? He wept so that the Jews said, See how he loved him, right? Mourning is permitted. The scriptures do not forbid us from mourning. Uh, The truth of the matter is that death is an awful thing. It is, in a sense, an unnatural thing. And what I mean by that is that God created us in the beginning to live forever. Uh, Death is the consequence of our rebellion. And so it is right, therefore, for the follower of Christ to mourn, and to mourn sincerely, and to even mourn deeply. But what do the Scriptures say? What do they warn against? It is not grief. But the Scriptures warn against grieving as others do who have no hope. Do you hear what the warning is here? It is not a warning against grief, but it's warning against grief or grieving as others do who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 In other words, our faith in God and in Christ whom He has sent should Regulate our mourning. When a follower of Christ mourns, he should in due time lift his eyes up from the earth to heaven. He should lift his eyes up from the grave. And upon fixating upon that, he, he should lift his eyes up to Christ risen and to, hope, to our hope that is there. When a follower of Christ mourns, he should do so with the help of others also. Notice that Abraham and Christ, whom I have mentioned already concerning grief or mourning, they mourned in the presence of others. 
Did you notice that in the text? They mourned in the presence of others. They did not, therefore, isolate themselves from the community. Keep this in mind, friends, that we live in an unusually individualistic and private society. You might not notice it because you're so used to it. But ours is a very individualistic and private society. We do a lot of things all alone. But I am here saying that grieving is not something that we should do all alone. We should not isolate ourselves, but we should rely upon the community, particularly the Christian community, to help us in our grief. When a follower of Christ mourns, he is to do so as one whose hope is firmly set in God. And this is what the Apostle explicitly calls the Christian to do. He says, when you mourn, when you grieve, do not do it like those who have no hope. We are to mourn in faith. We are to mourn having our hope set firmly in God. He is the one who will sustain us. Friends, when the time comes for us to mourn, and it will come, let us mourn well, And to the glory of God who has given us hope that goes beyond the grave through the Christ whom He has provided. Abraham experienced sorrow. And so will we as we journey in this life. We've considered Abraham's sorrow. Let us now briefly consider Abraham's sojourning by looking at verses 3 through 4. This point will be brief. There we read that Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, the Hittites were what the inhabitants of the land of Canaan were called generally. That was the name for them. And notice that Abraham goes before them when Sarah dies and he asks them for a place to bury his dead. For he was still a sojourner. Abraham was very wealthy, but one thing he did not have was any land at all, not even enough land to put Sarah into the ground or into a cave. He did not even possess that. He was a foreigner in that land who owned not a single piece of property in Canaan. And this is significant when we consider it in light of the promises of God made to Abraham concerning the land. Remember that God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants. And what did Abraham receive in fulfillment uh, to that promise? Well, by this time in his life, he had actually received something. He saw the birth of his son, Isaac. He did not see the full and final fulfillment of that promise, but he saw something. God God also promised that his descendants would possess the whole land of Canaan. It would be theirs. But as of yet, notice Abraham was still a sojourner. He had nothing at all as it pertained to the fulfillment of that land promise. The fact of Abraham's sojourning, notice, would have an impact upon all of his descendants physically and spiritually considered. When we think of Father Abraham, what do we think of? We think of a sojourner. One who lived his life in a foreign land that was not his own. The Jewish people, once they finally came to possess the land of Canaan, were to be mindful of the sojourners who then lived amongst them. They were to be careful not to oppress them in any way. For example, Exodus 23.9 says, You shall not oppress a sojourner, 
You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here Moses is appealing to the generation that was brought out of Egypt, saying, When sojourners are amongst you, do not oppress them. Care for them. For you know what it's like to be a sojourner. I suppose Moses also could have said, Your forefathers were sojourners as well in the land of Canaan for a time. So you know the heart of a sojourner, Moses says. Furthermore, the Israelite who lived in the promised land after the exodus and conquest was to live in the land knowing that their hope was truly set in the heavenly Jerusalem and not the earthly. Here I am making the point that these children of Abraham according to the flesh, even after they came to have the land of Canaan, were to look upon it as if it were on loan from God, as if it was not ultimately their home. When they looked at, upon Jerusalem and upon the temple there, they were not to think, this is it, but rather they were to set their eyes upon the heavenly Jerusalem and upon the temple that will one day fill all the earth. They, even possessing the land, were to still live as sojourners in a sense. And listen to Peter's words to the Christian living under the new covenant. We are Abraham's children, are we not? Sojourners along with him. We are his children according to the Spirit. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This idea of being a sojourner, it goes along with being a child of Abraham, either a child according to the flesh or a child according to the Spirit. Our father Abraham was a sojourner, and so are we. We are to... Therefore, maintain the mentality of a sojourner at all times. This does not mean that we are forbidden from acquiring property or from building wealth. But it does mean that we are to live on this earth continually mindful of the fact that this is not our home. We are to store up treasures not on earth but on heaven. And so I ask you, are you living as a sojourner? You might own property, you might own a home, you might be building wealth, and all of that is fine. It is not forbidden in the Scriptures. But as you do that, are you mindful of the fact, this is not it. This is not my final destination. This is not my home. I am living in a world that thinks and acts differently. I have different customs because I belong to a different kingdom ultimately. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you think often about that as you go about living life in this world. Your allegiance is not primarily to this country or to this land or to this culture. Your allegiance is to God. Your allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to live as citizens of His kingdom. Lastly, we are to consider Abraham's acquisition of a sliver of land in Canaan as described in verses 5-3. through He had sorrow. He was a sojourner. But the bulk of this text is about his acquisition of a sliver of land in Canaan. Verses 5-20 through describe this, and I am not going to walk you through this passage methodically, given the length of it. It's a very interesting passage to to notice how the negotiation took place and, and the customs of that day. They gathered together the leaders of the land in the city gate, and they began to dialogue with one another openly. I think it's quite beautiful, actually. But notice a few things. One, notice again that the bulk of Genesis 23 is devoted to the story of Abraham's acquisition of this land. 
This is the thing that Moses wanted to highlight. Sarah's death and Abraham's mourning is only a precursor, therefore, to the main story. Two, notice the respect that Abraham showed to the Hittites. Did that strike you? It really struck me when I saw it. Here is Father Abraham. Here is the sojourner Abraham, the man of faith dwelling amongst pagans. But when he comes before them, he speaks to them so respectfully. He even on two occasions, I think, bows down before them. I think that is to be noted. And may all of Abraham's children learn how to sojourn by their father's example. Though it is true that if we belong to God, we are to live lives of holiness in the world. Though it is true that there should be a noticeable difference between the way that we live and the way that the world lives. It is also true that we are to strive for peace with all men. And we are to treat others in a respectful way. And I believe that Abraham models this beautifully here. Listen to what Peter again says in his letter. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He's talking to Christians who are sojourners in this world. And then he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with what? Are you familiar with this passage? Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is here writing to Christians who are sojourners, living in a land that is not their home. And as he, he's even d- addressing the, the, the reality of persecution. It may be that you suffer at the hands of those around you. Because you belong to Christ, it may be that they slander you and persecute you. But you're to be ready to give an answer to them concerning the hope that is in you. But you're to do it how so? By shooting them down? By making them look stupid? By obliterating their ar- arguments? By being harsh and condescending? Is that how you are to do it? Are you to isolate yourself so much so from them that you have no opportunity at all? No, neither. Paul, Peter is saying, live amongst them. And even if they should persecute you, speak to them with gentleness and respect. Walk away from the encounter with a clear conscience, right? So that when they revile you, they see your good behavior and in fact are put to shame by it. The Christian sojourner is to give a reason for the hope that is in them, yet with gentleness and respect he is to have a good conscience. Perhaps you have noticed that in our culture, uh, this culture is not currently characterized by kind, gentle, and respectful behavior. Have you noticed that? Um, People speak to one another harshly. There's a lot of venom, it seems. There's a lot of nastiness that permeates our interaction with one another, it seems to me that people have forgotten how to disagree with civility. I think it is partly due to the social media. But there is a harshness that characterizes our discourse. And what I am saying is this, I believe that Christians are called to do better. Followers of Christ are called to address their enemies even 
and to show them respect. They are to do good even to those who mistreat them. Followers of Christ are to treat people with gentleness and respect, and our speech is even to be seasoned with salt. And so, friends, I am here exhorting you not to be conformed to the way of the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I think this is one way that we can shine as lights in the darkness. We can treat those around us, even if we disagree with them deeply and sincerely. We can treat them with respect. Abraham showed respect to the Hittites. And the third observation I make about this is the honor that they showed to him in return. This also was striking. Verse 6, they reply to his request saying, Hear us, my Lord. Oh, this is interesting. They even say, You are a prince of God amongst us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold it from you. You are able to go and to bury your dead is their message to him. Again, in verse 11, Ephron says, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. There's just there's mutual respect here. Because of Abraham's respect towards the people shown to them is kindness, uh, they replied in, in turn, showing honor and respect uh, to Abraham. The offer of Ephron was really this. I will loan you the field. There's kind of technical language being used here. And if you pay careful attention to the discourse, the first offer was this. I'll loan you the field. You can use it. But it would, have not, it would not have belonged to Abraham had he accepted that initial offer. I will give it to you for your use, is the idea. The offer was kind and generous. But notice that Abraham really wanted to own the land. He wanted it to be his so that not only could he bury Sarah there, but he himself could be buried there and future generations also. And in fact, we will learn that that is what happened. And so in verse 11, we read that Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Now, as this process unfolds, Ephron eventually named the price. Oh, what is... What is a field worth 400 shekels of silver between you and me? It was a nifty little way of him dropping his desired price out on the table for Abraham to consider. And it is really hard to know if this was a good price or if it was an inflated price. Certainly Ephron knew that Abraham was in a desperate position. He could have price gouged in this moment. But we don't know enough about the land prices at that time to make a judgment here. The point is this, Abraham bought it. He purchased the land. He didn't negotiate the price. He respectfully paid what Ephron asked. And listen to the emphasis, therefore, upon Abraham's acquisition in verses 17 through 20. I will read this again. Listen to the emphasis. It's almost as if Moses is belaboring the point. He wants us to understand something. So the field of Ephron and Mechpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Doesn't it sound like Moses is kind of belaboring the point here? Hey, this land, all of it, the trees, everything, the cave, it, it, it was Abraham's. It came to be his possession. There were witnesses that could testify to the fact of the purchase. And then he goes on even longer. After this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Michpah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property 
for a burying place by the Hittites. It's repetitive, isn't it? Moses wants us to realize something. Abraham did come into possession of a sliver of land in Canaan in his lifetime. Friends, uh, the story of Genesis can be described as the story of the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises of God made to Abraham. That is what it is. The name of the book means beginnings, doesn't it? We learn of the beginning of the heavens and the earth, of course. That's what most people uh, think of when they hear the name Genesis or when they consider that it is a book about beginnings. But also we hear the beginning of the promises of God concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ put forth there. And we begin to see the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, the patriarch. It was promised to Abraham that his descendants would be like the dust of the earth, the stars of heaven, and the sand of the seashore. Nations would come from him. But what did Abraham see in his lifetime? He saw only his son, Isaac. And it was promised that the land of Canaan would also be his. But what did he himself come into possession of? Only one sliver of land to be used as a burial ground for his people. But this is significant. Abraham did come into possession of something. And what did he use that land for? He buried his dead there. And I think there is something very symbolic about that. This is home. This is home. Not now. I'm still a sojourner now. But this is home. And this is where I will bury my dead in faith that I will indeed return here. Not personally. But through my descendants. And this will be ours. This will be theirs, not only in the Old Covenant age, but theirs for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we might emphasize how little of the fulfillment of the promises that Abraham saw, but we might also emphasize the fact that the Lord did give him something. He blessed him to at least have a taste of the fulfillment. Abraham saw Isaac, and he saw him grow up before him, and he owned a bit of land to bury his dead. He was given a little taste of the fulfillment of the promises of God. And I want you to notice that this is how God has chosen to accomplish His plan of redemption. His plan of redemption was not accomplished all at once. I suppose He could have done it that way. The Christ could have arrived immediately after the fall, I suppose. But His plan unfolded progressively. And I think the illustration of a seed is always helpful here. When God gave those promises to Abraham, it was like a farmer dropping a seed down into the earth. For some time, that farmer sees nothing at all. He might even think that the seed is lost. Maybe it was dead. But in due time, the farmer begins to see the seed sprout forth from the earth. And how exciting that moment must be for the farmer to see that the seed that I put into the ground was good seed. And indeed, there is the hope that it will produce life. It will come to maturity. And that is something like what Abraham experienced. He had the seed of the promise of God given to him, and for some time, many years, he must have wondered, is the seed good? Is there really life in it? Will it come to maturity ever? And he had to wait for a very long time to see anything of the fulfillment of the promises of God. But when Isaac was born, he must have thought, There is life here. God will fulfill His promises. I thought Sarah's womb was dead, but God brought life from it. I'm sure he began to grow more confident that indeed a great multitude would come from him and a great nation, for he laid his eyes upon Isaac. And the same is true for the land promises. 
He continued on as a sojourner. He didn't even have a place to bury his dead wife. But here we see that he comes to possess a sliver of land in Canaan. And it is a foretaste of good things to come. Abraham came into possession of it and his heart must have been greatly encouraged. He buried his wife there in faith, trusting that the whole land of Canaan would in due time belong to him. Brothers and sisters, please recognize that the Lord has done the same for you and me. He's done the same for you and me. Though it is true that the Christ has come, it is also true that we have not received the full and final fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Look around you. It should not be difficult to see that we still live in a fallen and sin-sick world, a world marked by corruption, by sorrow, by pain, and by death. We have not come to possess the fullness of that which was promised to Abraham. We are, according to his promises, waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 1-13, that passage that we read earlier. But God has given us a down payment, hasn't He? Having believed upon Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That is Paul's teaching in Ephesians 1, 13 and following. He is saying that though we have not come to fully possess the new heavens and earth, and though we have not been brought fully into glory, we have been given a down payment. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the people of God. He is the guarantee of our full inheritance. And we too have seen the first fruits of Christ's work. Christ rose from the grave, didn't He? And when He rose from the grave, it was proof that in fact God is able to raise those who belong to Him from the grave on the last day. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, and He is here called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, is that our Lord is gracious and kind to us. As we sojourn in this world, like Abraham sojourned in the land, and as we await the full fulfillment of the promises that have been made to us. He is gracious to us to give us a foretaste of the good things yet to come. He is gracious to us to give us a down payment of the good things yet to come. Think of what we do each Lord's Day as we gather here. We come together as the people of God. We commune with one another. And we come before our God and we give Him praise. We give Him worship. It actually sounds a lot like what we will do for all eternity but in a much better sense, in a much greater sense, in a glorified way. What we experience here each Lord's Day is a foretaste of the better things yet to come. Just like Father Abraham, you and I long to see the new heavens and earth. We long to see the resurrection of the dead on the last day. And just as He did for Abraham, the Lord has graciously provided us with a foretaste and down payment which guarantees the full and final fulfillment of these things. The resurrection of Christ from the grave proves that He will raise the dead who are in Him, and the Spirit has been poured out upon us, showing that the Lord will be faithful to bring us to glory. Friends, my prayer is that you would be encouraged by these things, that you would continue on faithful to the end as Abraham did. My desire to quote Hebrews 6, 11-12, is that each one of you would show the same earnestness 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we cherish your promises. We also cherish the ability to look back upon what you have done in history in fulfillment to those promises previously made. We are reassured by these things that you will bring all things to completion. You have been faithful in the past and we trust that you will be faithful in the future. Lord, I pray that you would help us to sojourn in this world well and to the glory of your name. Lord, you know our sorrows. Christ, you know them intimately, having experienced them yourself. You are able to sympathize with us, and we are grateful for this. You know our sorrows, our suffering. You know our fears. And we ask, Lord, that you would graciously sustain us in the midst of them to cause us to walk in a worthy manner before you. Lord, preserve us, cause us to persevere to the end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.